0: Welcome to the Digication Scholars Conversation Series. I'm your host, Joan Watson. In this episode, you'll hear part one of my conversation with Paul Wasco from University of Alaska Anchorage. More links and information about today's conversation can be found on Digication's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Full episodes of the Digication Scholars Conversation Series can be found on YouTube or your favorite podcast app. Anyone who knows him will agree that Paul Wasco is a force of nature. It's easy to be impressed with his resume of leadership and engagement with educational technology, particularly across the state of Minnesota, where he managed eFolio Minnesota and eFolio World, and where he also held senior positions with the state government and legislature. Paul is practically ePortfolio royalty. And he is certainly recognized as one of the founding members of the electronic portfolio community at large. I've come to know Paul as the manager of the ePortfolio instance known as eWolf at the University of Alaska in Anchorage. He's been there since about 2014, making the move from Minnesota to Anchorage, Alaska. And while there is no questioning Paul's technical acumen, what stands out really about Paul is his stewardship of his community. Uh, With considerable compassion and concern, Paul is committed and always has been to giving voice to those who are underrepresented and largely unheard. His efforts have forged significant connections and generated powerful opportunities for stakeholders and community members, both on and off campus. It's my pleasure to be talking with Paul Wasco today. Welcome, Paul.
1: Well, Joan, you know, you make me blush. If I yeah. ever hire out as someone who writes obituaries, if I'm unfortunately <laughs> passing on, I, I'm going to put my name out with your wife to hire you. So that thank oh, you. Those that. were really, really kind words and very moving. And, and thank
0: well, you. Well, very deserving for sure. So Good. A, a large part, Paul, of, of how I've come to know you and, and what the amazing things that have been happening at university of alaska at anchorage kind of revolve around storytelling and um i wonder if we could sort of start by you telling me your story
1: sure um sure actually it's kind of a fun way to start uh one thing i've learned since coming to alaska is alaska's a land of stories a big place big stories and I remember the first conference I was at, uh, I think it was AACNU, I had just arrived in Alaska in 2014, and everyone's coming up to me to either share their stories or to hear my stories about Alaska. And having been here only a month, I already did have stories. But by the end of that year, 2014, I did have my own, and, and I will tell it quickly I can tell it to stretch over at least two or three beers, but, but we'll, we'll do the short <laughs> version. Um, we had a, a good friend at our church who was a, an older gentleman who flew a two seater plane. And in fact, it's kind of sad he's actually passed on because of COVID and, and okay. it's, it's really unfortunate, but he gave me an opportunity to sh- really, to experience an element of Alaska that I'm glad I did, although I'm surprised I survived. Um he asked if I would go down fishing with him at Montauk Island. And uh, I said, sure, why not? I, I think it'd be cool. Um, and what I'll do is really just i will quickly share my screen, not because I want to do a lot of screen sharing here, but just so you get some ideas of the lay of the land. Here is Anchorage here up in where I'm kind of highlighting with my cursor, and then we're flying down to Montauk Island here. Oh, okay. And so the day arrives and I show up at the airport. We go through our checklist. Um, it's fun. First time I've ever been on a really small plane. And so we take off and the route to get from here to here is obviously a straight line. So we fly over and what you can see here is not, only are we flying over mountains but we're flying over glaciers and ice fields. Mm. And as you look down, it is breathtaking, uh, a sea of ice. And it is, we're only a couple hundred yards above above the ice fields, it's a really amazing sight. And then we fly down here, we land on Montauk Island. Well, I knew the day was going to get interesting after we landed because the plane started sinking into the sand. which meant we needed to, even though it was amphibian play, we needed to get out of the sand. And so what what that involved is us having to push the plane up on the beach. And it was a, it was a pusher prop. So the prop is behind, not in front of the plane. And since there's only two of us, you can guess who's pushing. That would be me. And so <laughs> push the plane up. And oh, by the way, Jim is in his, Jim, he's in his eighties, um, so I'm the muscle in my fifties and I am not muscle. Anyways, we finally get the plane up and out and he's gunning the engine and the props all of two feet away from me and everything else. But we, we get situated. Great. How far, how far is it to where we're going to fish? Don't know. And so we start walking down the beach and realize we're not on a trail, which means at some point we need to bushwhack through the woods with fishing gear and everything else. and, And we do that. That's not necessarily unusual in Alaska, but for me, you know, we're used to hiking trails. Bushwhacking through the woods is a little different. Uh, We finally get to the fishing place, and it's all those elements people hear about Alaska. Crystal clear streams, uh, amazingly sized fish. We are fishing for silver salmon, and I know as a fisherman we do extend the truth a little bit, but I swear to God they were that big, (laughs) and they would do Everything you would think of, Joan, in terms of jump and fight and everything else. Anyways, and I am kind of rushing through this a little bit. Uh, but we finally get our our limit of fish, and it's a really big haul of fish. And for me, it's the first time really fishing for salmon that size. And so I go up to get the cutting board at the public use cabin that was just next to the stream. And I hear uh, I hear Jim saying, what? I I starting to swear which i won't swear on the podcast and i come over the lip looking over the stream and i see a brown bear which a lot of the folks would refer to as a grizzly bear swimming across the stream toward jim now I've done enough bear aware class here to know you don't want to release the fish, even though it's tempting because you don't want to train the bear to attack fishermen so jim again who's who's older um I grab the fish, send him up the hill, grab it, get going up the hill, and I realize as i as I top the hill i said that that bear's following me, <laughs> and okay. I turn around, and from me, about eight feet in front of me is the bear. And, and so you're trained to go big, stop bear. You start yelling and everything else. And Jim's walking back to the cabin and I'm walking back and the bear does stop. It does work. And I'm starting to haul the fish back and we finally get back to the cabin, but now the bear is down by our stuff. So I'm trying to yell and throw, and get the bear out. Cause at some point we need to get out. And, and finally the bear leaves. So we get our stuff and we get the fish cleaned real fast and we need to get back to the plane because the day is, is getting a little long. So we're hiking back to the plane and Jim is Jim's older. And on our way back, he needs to take two naps. Oh no? And I, I love Jim. I can't fly the plane and my pilot is taking naps because he's so tired. Oh. The other thing I realize is. I'm stepping over fresh bear scap and I have 60 pounds of really wonderfully smelling salmon in my backpack. I'm thinking, you know, I don't care what they say. If I see a bear, I'm dropping the backpack. We're getting to the plane. So we get to the plane and I am hurrying out of this because there's still more. Uh, so we get to the plane and we finally load up. Jim takes his second nap and we get in the <laughs> plane and... Right before we get in the plane, he's counting out the steps. And I said, Jim, why are you counting the steps? And he says, because the turbo on the plane hasn't been working very well. And I think we'll miss that tree as we take off. I I am totally in favor of missing the tree. So I grabbed grabbed the radio. I said, I'll just keep the radio in my my lap and everything else. And you need to realize there is no 911 close, because if if you're looking at the map, you're actually calling Coast Guard stations that are up here in Cordova or Valdez. And so it's a helicopter out, right? So we finally, the plane takes off, and we're looking back, and this route going back here is basically cloud covered and we have to do visual flight rules so we can't go back the way we came so we end up flying through prince William Sound, which looks like the fjords of norway and everything else and we're going across the saddle here in whittier which is a, a town where there's kind of a low spot in the mountains right where my my cursor is and we finally get close and jim says oh by the way um we have to be careful coming through the saddle because there are planes that have crashed okay cool so we go over the saddle I'm looking down there's planes that have crashed because people think they can make it through and whatnot they you know you need to be careful on the plane so we we make it through and oh good we're almost there and we're coming down this little arm right here and he says huh we only have three gallons of gas left, left. so. So i thought oh cool i've i've seen stories of people landing on highways in alaska we'll just be on the news as landing on the the highway here coming out of anchorage leveled out the plane a little bit the float was stuck so oh good we have enough gas finally get anchorage and by this time the sun is coming directly from the west and we end up almost missing the airport flying into the military base that's north of, of Anchorage. They don't get really excited with planes entering military airspace. You just don't want to, you don't really want to do that anyway. So we get a little alert. So we finally come around and we start getting ready to land. And the Jim says, it's really hard to see because the sun's right at us. And so we finally touch down and the plane is bouncing and he starts swearing again because his left foot has fallen asleep, which is part of the control when you're landing. So we are now bouncing and we are now in the grass. And in the back of my mind, thinking the good news is we're almost out of gas anyway. So if we flip, it won't explode. Land on the grass, suffice it to say, we pull off and whatnot and get out. And at this point I'm laughing because you can always laugh and uh i i was sharing this with a, a friend who's in the civil War air patrol and there's a lot of other aspects of the story that i haven't shared just because of time and i'm laughing and she looks at me and says um you should not be alive she said there were too many things that went wrong on that day you should not be alive oh and God. and so so joan thank you for kind of honoring but Alaska's full of stories. And what you realize is people want to share those stories. And even as I told those stories, you could tell I reached out to a map or I could add other components and video. And so you could see how elements of this could easily connect into their portfolio, right? And and you kind of bring it alive. So you both narrate as well as curate the story. But, but that's my Alaska story. And my wife that was the second time I had phone with Jim and simply said, yeah, that's not ever happening again. (laughs) (laughs) So defice it to say that probably will get me beers at a bar for the rest of my life when we have Alaska storytelling or whatnot. But I, I am happy. I had that experience. It is one of those things where, you know, when, when you're old and sharing things of your life, I will share that, you know, I will share those Alaska stories with folks. So thank you for kind of giving me an opportunity to, Hey, this is this, this is the place of Alaska.
0: Right. And that's wonderful. And it's, it's interesting because I know uh, one of the other things that I have learned about um, Alaska culture, Alaskan culture, especially the community that you work with in Anchorage, there's um, a real sense of place. And so when you meet people for the first time, they are very articulate about where they are from and who their family is. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the formal introduction might go something like, what if you were formally introducing? So,
1: and actually I really like it. I've used it a lot, even in conferences. And and so if you and I were doing this, and, and I do think it's a grounding element. And in fact, if we were doing this at the university, there also would be a land acknowledgement that the university sits. I'm in the library at the university and the university sits on denied a land. This land is all historically tied into our, our native Alaskan community. And there's always those acknowledgements about where we are. But if you and I were doing this, I'd say, you know, my name's Paul Wasco. My father is Doug Wasco and my mother is Karen Wasco. I grew up in Minnesota. I have a brother, Peter, and a sister, Kristen. Uh, I spent my life in Minnesota where I met my wife, Laurie, our two daughters, Katie and Emma, were also born in Minnesota and we came to alaska in 2014 to begin our adventure up here and we would do the acknowledgement of of family Mm -hmm. and parents as part of this and when you do that there's a there's an interesting centering component that happens and so you start understanding the person is more than their job title we all carry with us elements of family and life and, and, and some of those components. And, and so, yeah, and, and it's, it's a really interesting, cool way to kind of set a tone for the conversation.
0: Well, and you said something that I think is really important, because I think sometimes in higher ed, um, especially working with students, we really push that academic side. And in a lot of ways, because of FERPA and things like that, Mm -hmm. we're as, as faculty and educators, we're taught to sort of keep the personal stuff kind of at, at arm's length because we want to protect students. But then there's also this really important part about all of that family and personal life and past experience mm-hmm. is super critical into their development. And so um, I wondering if you could talk just a little bit about how portfolios have been really useful in, um, in UAA. And it doesn't have to be necessarily portfolios because they're just there. I mean, they're a vehicle, right? Which is wonderful. But the ability to actually get students to value and to uh, promote that family um, and community connection Mm
1: -hmm.
0: alongside their growing academic knowledge.
1: Sure. So, there, there's three things I'll highlight and, and let's kind of play with this a little bit if you're okay with this. And really? so um, you're going to have an assignment here too, so I want okay. you to be aware of this. Um, names and who we are for many students have meaning. And, and so the way you structure the question on kind of family and connections, what you start realizing is for, for many folks, names, our name connects us with mother, father, grandpa, Ants, whoever, whoever. And so while the exercises I do, I actually do this in the portfolio, was a, a little bit of a derivative work from um, Tommy Woon, who's a friend of Helen Chen from Stanford, introduced us to six-word storytelling. And you know, I won't give you the history of it. People can Google six-word storytelling, or if you're really fancy in your video podcast, you can create a link to the Wikipedia or whatnot. Um, But it's the idea of telling a story six words. And then I also had Joe Lambert up here from the uh, Story Center out of Berkeley. And he came up and he had said, tell me the story of your name. And so what I did was I'd use six word storytellings in the portfolio to say, give me six words to tell the story, give me a picture and give me a reflection. Mm-hmm. and that becomes your portfolio and something that simple is is incredibly powerful and i've done this exercise with with people in some interesting ways so i combined joe's work and tommy's work and said give me a six word story of your name and and it could be your last name it could be a middle name it could be a first name but give me six words find a photo if you don't have a photo draw a picture and then do a reflection and, you know, I, I always frame this. So in fact, I, I did this recently for a trafficking conference and it just went, re- It, I've done it. It works so well, it almost feels fake. And so I'll say, give me six words, picture, reflection. And then I'll say, look, for mine is, no, my father, I'm just reversed. Uh-huh. So my name is Paul Douglas Wasco. My father's name is Douglas Paul Wasco. So then I would add a picture of dad and I, and dad is still alive. And so is my mom. Um, And they're married and, and living in Richfield, Minnesota. And then I would talk about the fact that my folks did not want me to be junior. So they didn't want to do a, you know, Douglas Paul Wasco. They wanted to keep the name Paul because there'd be a number of Pauls in my family. And so they simply reversed it to craft my name ah. so that's how i got my name and then i turn it to the audience and say do your own and i and we pause it's not like this right you give people you know a minute or two and whatnot and then you go through it and what it brings out are all these different elements mm-hmm. so joan if i did that for you what would it be Uh
0: so the six word story of my name mm-hmm Hmm. Okay, this is subject to revision.
1: <laughs> yep. 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 But
0: initially, yep. I would say, um, green rolling hills, mm-hmm. black watch tartan. Mm-hmm. And so that would be my my name is Joan Caroline Monahan Watson. And so I have a very strong Irish and Scottish background. Right. Um, My grandmother, it was a Copenhaver and a Buchanan. And the Buchanan came directly from Scotland. And so the Black Watch tartan is the Scottish fabric that we have. We all have kilts, you know. Um, And then the the Green Rolling Hills of Ireland is where my family is from in um, southern central Ireland from Monaghan County. So that's, I think that would be because very much both of my, and this can also lead to, I guess, text about my family is that they were all mm-hmm. very interested in origin and place. Mm. Um, and we're only a, a few generations here in the States. And so being able to trace back um, has a lot of significance for us. Mm-hmm. So,
1: yeah. That's cool. And and Joe, so first, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Two is, I learned stuff about you that I did not know. (laughs) And it was only really this very short one-minute sharing, right? And so you could see how this would easily translate into a portfolio, Mm -hmm. right? Because as you're describing this, I could see, oh, I could grab this, a map, and maybe a picture of my friend, da-da-da-da, and then the reflections. And now all of a sudden, you have a portfolio site that's profoundly personal. You are tied into this. And you are tied to family and place and all those components and so i use that uh, approach a lot to kind of introduce some of the portfolio work here at the university and and it it can complement or replace the about me section that frequently is part of the portfolio and in fact we have a template as you know inside education talking about this and we we freely share it with folks and and would love others to kind of of take advantage of it if it adds value. So that's one component that honors who am I and and allows people to be themselves beyond just a name and a label and goes deeper. So there were two other things that I'll share with you in the context of the question that, that you asked. One was a number of years back. Uh, I was working with a colleague by the name of Sheila Rindazo, and Cheryl Turner was there and some other folks and, and Sheila's part of our naF Student Service uh, team that, were, that was here at the university. And it was, I would just start to sell the portfolio. Like many of my colleagues around the country, part of our job is, is selling the portfolio. I don't say that negatively. We have to be the proponent to go out there and engage. And, and I'm lucky enough to have lots of experiences that you, you were highlighting during the awesome intro. And so I have lots of, of possibilities I can tap into. There's always a, something I worked on that usually could fit something. And, and so I had a, a dialogue with Sheila, who was really interested in bringing the portfolio into, into the NAF Student Services, because she thought it would have value for the population. And It's a population, honestly, Joe, I did spend a lot of time in Minnesota because I kind of work at a system level. I don't always get the chance to go deeper into those spaces when you work with 36 schools around the state and everything else. Uh, So I'm talking with Sheila and I'm highlighting some work we had done with Century College and some other folks in Minnesota that was around a holistic advising model. Minnesota calls it GPS life planning. If you Google it, you'll find it as well. But it was a holistic advising model that talked about everything from career planning to personal development to leadership growth. It's based on some work coming out of Valencia. And it's really cool. It it addresses uh, really all the aspects that we should be talking about with students beyond just what classes are you going to take next semester and how are you going to pay bills. So I went through it. And, and there's a portfolio component to this. I finished it up and Sheila then said, how could something like this help engage and heal and work with our native students? And I looked at her and, you know, I, I know it sounds trite, but, you know, you get these goosebumps sometimes when you're on something that is just so cool and you don't know what it is, but you know there's something really there. And I said, I don't know. I I I don't know. <laughs> and I laughed and in fact I, I shared a little bit the story. Uh there's a broadcast AACNU that I was blessed to be on the stage with Eva Gregg. I'll talk about Eva in a second, that tells the story with a, a little gray depth, but suffice it to say I called Helen Chen, because helen Stanford, and Stanford's supposed to know everything. And Helen what? says, I don't know. <laughs> and that's But we were both excited that that's when she introduced me to Tommy Woon. And so that was the first time we started talking with Tommy. And the work with Tommy and the work with Sheila led to the development of an effort that basically took the GPS life plan or the holistic advising model and developed, indigenized it, brought it through into language that would resonate with indigenous students, native, native Alaskan students here and include things a little bit like what we were talking about with the story with, with who's your family, who's your tribe, who's your, in our words, those elements, and then converted things from financial planning into being a provider, you know, because here, Alaska, for some elements of still the community here, there are still villages who are off almost kind of off-grid. They live off the road system. You only get there by plane or by others. I mean, Alaska is a very different different place. And so hunting, fishing, foraging are still part of elements of lifestyle. And so they took a financial plan and looked at it through being a provider lens. And, and they did some stuff. And Sheila, who's now at uh, Office of Child Services, uh, had asked one of the, the workers there at the office, Eva Gregg, to actually do this and f- complete the process. Um, and it, it it's not a one hour thing to go through this exercise. It really involves some some thought and time. And Eva did a great job and was showcasing her work to um, some of the native elders. Tommy was up here. And what Tommy and the elders realized is not only was it a holistic advisory model, it was actually beginning to heal certain elements of historical trauma. And, and very emotional. In fact, I have a hard time getting through it sometimes. Um, but that work led into then further development of how might the portfolio fit into a very new place. Mm-hmm. And of late, there's actually a, a National Intu- Institute of Health grant that's involved with some of this work. They've continued to develop it. Uh, my deputy Shamai Thacker, who is also native, is now kind of taking the lead to engage in that space, and so she's working in that space. And I've kind of I've stepped back and, and kind of work in, in other spaces. But that's the portfolio beyond anything we thought about. Again, if you want more information, you're well aware that there's an AACNU broadcast that highlights that with Eva sharing her story and, and just doing an amazing, amazing, humorous, funny, thoughtful job that really is cool and, and worth the 20 minutes just to go through that. So that's kind of the second part of this. And then the, the, the other part, the part that really has drawn some um, really interest, both from your space, but also NIOLA and aac and, U and others recently, is work I was doing with uh, Dr. Andre Thorne. And there's actually, you guys did a broadcast, I think, last year that captured an interview with Dr. Thorne and his team at the Multicultural Center. So there's a Native Student Services, and then we have a Multicultural Center here at the University. Um and Dr. Thorne was director for that, and we started coming in and we started working on translating some of his efforts through this this practice of portfolio use and identity and culture into his space. and we took their showcase effort, which was the Student of Excellence, which is a, a competition scholarship competition that um, they've run for a number of years. And we went through and translate that into the portfolio space, and it worked. It, it oh god, it worked well. Um, so a couple things, and he'll talk about this. And and if you listen to the broadcast, he's very passionate. I love working with Andre. Um, it allows the student to have this multimedia representation of self and do it in a way that's in a safe space. It's in the multicultural office and so they're adding and talking about who they are in this space and they're adding all these different elements because we're really encouraging them to do things of video and audio in fact we expect them to do those types of things and And the work is is a couple things happen that were really interesting so if, if Andre's doing this, he would do the following the number of applications went like this. The quality of the applications went through the roof. So they had, they had people being more thoughtful about what they did, which made the judging a little harder, but they did have 50 or 60 applications because it take it took thought and engagement to do this. And they are so, they being both a multicultural office, students are so proud of the work. And we've been doing that now for a number of years and the results the engagement the stories everything that's coming out and and you guys you know i try to involve digication when i can and you've scored this kelly has scored this and so you've had a chance to be part of this but like i said um Niola was really interested andre on how this might be uh ported out to other institution and gianna uh, the deputy over at Niola was like, oh, we need to write this up. And, and I know some of the folks of, of your, your husband and Tia and others at AACNU have also been really interested, especially at this time of Black Lives Matters and whatnot on how a portfolio can help fit in and complement the space. And, and so the other elements of of the community. And that work, the steward of excellent work, then branched into the other aspects of the multicultural center. And and so very much, they use it with freshmen, they use it with mentors, they use it just really cool number of ways. And that office has actually become a stellar showcase for high impact practices, an amazing showcase for that. Now, um, Andre unfortunately has left the university here. Um, he is down in Mizzou. Um, if he was, if he was doing the interview now, he'd say go Mizzou. Uh, but and and very emotional again. Um, but we're now starting to talk about potentially how Missouri and UAA might collaborate. He's an environment that really is encouraging him to do a lot of creative things, bring things at scale, push some stuff out. So the, our journey together is now done. And we're starting to talk about how we do and engage in some of these work and activities. And, and so when you ask to get about community, culture, diversity, identity, those are really three really cool elements that have happened. And it's, and it's cool to kind of honor some of the student affairs efforts because we have some amazing faculty here like we do at all sorts of institutions around. But sometimes some of these other folks don't always have the opportunity to engage in ways that that allow them to be viewed in a a rigorous, meaningful, you know, hey, this stuff, this learning outside the classroom can really be beneficial to our students. So that's, that's probably more than what you want, but, but those are, and by the way, we're happy to share all that stuff. So, you know, or engage on that, but, but those are really what gets me, you know, what gets me revved are are those types of things that, that really start impacting in some meaningful ways, student lives and some of the lives of of folks around here. So
0: that's excellent. Yeah. Thank you. for that. This concludes part one of our conversation with Paul Wasco from University of Alaska, Anchorage. To hear part two, be sure to subscribe to Digication Scholars Conversations on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. The Digication Scholars Conversations series is brought to you by Digication technology platform powering the most innovative e programs in K 12 and higher education. Our website can be found at digication.com. This episode was produced by Drew Albanicius. Thanks for listening.